Hello, and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration, as usual, between my company and legal research and tech company, Fastcase, and their sister company, Law Street Media. It's a great online legal news source. Today, we're going to talk about another in a series of events that prove just how greedy and underhanded people could be in their quest to take advantage of good intentions. Humanity. Of course, I'm talking about the federal government's multi-billion dollar paycheck protection program, or PPP, and uh, emergency SBA lending that has some level of forgiveness. It's all part of the CARES Act. It's all designed to assist Americans and businesses suffering during the pandemic-fueled economic downturn that has put millions of people out of jobs and hundreds of thousands of uh, enterprises out of business. The funds were intended for much-needed relief, but booyah, some people think. I could really cash in. With so much money out there to give relief to people in need, I mean, what else do we expect people to do but to try and steal it? The government doesn't love that. A recent example, and there are many, the federal government announced the indictment of four individuals in a Los Angeles-based fraud ring. They are charged with filing 35 fraudulent loan applications. (laughs) I can't even complete one. Well, that's because mine is legitimate. Uh, They were trying to get nearly $6 million in COVID relief funds. That was in November of 2020. And Happy New Year. Just 12 days into the new year, the DOJ announced its first fraud settlement with a company and the company's CEO. They had to pay $100,000 in damages and penalties. They had to pay back the funds, too. So there, take that. More recently, some fraudsters uh, sound like they could inspire a Coen Brothers film. A beauty salon company tried to get relief funds for all the farmers on staff. I think we've all been surprised by all the farming going on at beauty salons and barbershops. And, you know, it's time to ask why. I don't know if hair counts as a crop, but I'm no expert. Apparently, there's much more fraud to come, but don't take my word for it. I'm pleased to work with two attorneys who know quite a bit about this and criminal behavior. David Haas is a federal criminal defense attorney. He handles False Claims Act, whistleblower Ketam litigation. And uh, he's a former state and federal prosecutor. He has extensive jury trial experience. He's handled more than 65 jury trials. He started his career as a state prosecutor where he handled felony and misdemeanor offenses. He was promoted to chief of the Economic Environmental Crimes Division. Then he moved to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Middle District of Florida, and where he handled complex white-collar matters, including bank fraud, mortgage fraud, money laundering, all sorts of good things, even Ponzi schemes. He was also an organized crime drug enforcement task force member. He was recognized for his work with many law enforcement agencies, from the FBI to the DEA to the Postal Service to... On and on, the FDA, Secret Service, etc. A skilled litigator, 
He's also an adjunct professor at Barry University's Duane O. Andreas School of Law, where he teaches trial advocacy. Joining him is Dan Eckert of Eckert Law, also a former federal prosecutor, but he was also a former federal agent. After leaving the Department of Justice, Dan has represented scores of people facing criminal charges throughout the country. They were charged with these are folks who were charged with money laundering, conspiracy, wire fraud, healthcare fraud, obstruction of justice, possession with intent to distribute heroin, methamphetamines, cocaine and marijuana, possession and receipt of child pornography, identity theft, and felon in possession of a firearm. He's also defended clients charged with serious offenses filed by state prosecutors, such as attempted murder and major fraud. So these guys deal with serious stuff. What did you do today? What did I do for that matter? Nothing like this. But trust me, they do have a sense of humor, and that's probably why they can get out of bed every morning. They uh, believe in what they're doing, and uh, believe it or not, they sound like they have a little fun doing it. But with that, I'm going to turn it over. I'm not going to turn anything over. I'm going to get started and let you listen to what these two gentlemen have to say. Again, uh, David Haas and Dan Eckhart. Hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get started. How is all of this happening? How and how prevalent is the fraud that you're seeing out there? I, hypothetically, I would, I would, I, I know that it has been publicly released that there's over a billion in fraud, and I would think that that number is extraordinarily low. Yeah, and Tom, I mean, I just looked at some some statistics just this morning and. Uh, just to give you an idea, the uh, Small Business Administration, which is one of the several agencies that investigates these types of crimes, they referred a total of 11 cases in 2019 to the U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution. And in 2020, they referred 91. <laughs> so that's statistically quite a quite a big jump, and I'm sure it's going to increase even more in 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 you know in 2021 um, because just the as David said, there's just so much money that was doled out so quickly. Um, and, you know, the two programs, I don't know if you want to get into that, but basically there's two, two different programs. You have the mm-hmm. Paycheck Protection Program, which is the PPP, which is essentially a 1% loan, and it's meant to be for payroll, rent, utilities, and it's subject to forgiveness if the money is spent on those costs within, you know, the time frame. And the second type of um, loans are the EIDL loans, economic injury dis- disaster loans. Technically, you're not supposed to spend the money or you're not supposed to spend the money on the same things as the PPP loans. So you can't really, I don't want to get into the logistics of it or legality of what can be spent, but it's supposed to be for the same type of things, but you, you're not supposed to double dip. Um, but you have all sorts of variations of fraud with both, both those types of programs. And it's, it's like David said, it's, it's hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. It's probably mm-hmm. out there fraudulently so how are, how are they doing it what, what examples of, of fraud are they are they exploiting weaknesses in the system well the the application itself you know back when when this first started um, was fairly simple it was you know there was no need-based uh, requirement for it it was you know basically how many employees do you have and was your company or entity formed before a particular date in time so that it, you couldn't just form a company, 
just to get PPP benefits. So, um, you know, then there were some caps with how much you could get per employee. You couldn't, you know, it, it was a percentage of what any income was uh, less than a hundred thousand dollars. So depending on your employees and what they made, there was sort of an infusion designed to, you know, keep you afloat for what was at the time thought to be three months so that you could keep your business open. Um, you know, here we are almost to the date, a year into the pandemic. Um, but, you know, so the, the, the application process itself was fairly simple. Um, it, it, it was not, quote unquote, need based. It was really just designed to keep companies afloat that had less than you know, 500 employees. Um, you know, so there were there were some issues with that. There were some types of businesses that were specifically excluded. So, you know, there are certain companies that were ineligible for for PPP funds. Um, but, you know, those, the requirements were fairly, you know, nondescript other than that. Where you find the fraud is just the, um, you know, basically the manufacturing of employees, um, overstating a payroll cost, overstating of the business model um, as opposed to what was projected compared to what was done in, in, in the past. And so that's where there was just ample opportunity for people to go ahead and inflate their numbers and get more money. Or to make up fake companies and, you know, try to get around that date of creation of the business. So there's a number of, you know, I'm sure there's tens of hundreds of businesses that, you know, were formed even after that. You couldn't be a convicted felon. Um, I'm sure there's felons that have found a way around that. But, you know, those those were basically the requirements. Not you, Tom. I'm not saying you're. No. Are we okay? Are we okay with misdemeanors? <laughs> <laughs> you're okay with misdemeanors. Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the the, the type of, of fraudsters out there. Is there a profile that you're seeing that some of the what I read, they seem to be just individuals to larger organizations? What are you seeing? Well, out look, there? I mean, you know, there's you've seen some of the cases that have come out, you know, that have been published already. I mean, these are people that were either just trying to take advantage of the system or opportunistic or, you know, more devious that, you know, forged documents and did things like that. You know, I know from just talking to DEA agents that, you know, they said that they saw a downturn in drug cases when PPP came out because drug dealers were able to get PPP funds. So they didn't have to sell drugs for a while. So, you know, I, I don't think there's any sort of there, there's no uh, MO for how this goes, but every single type of personality being opportunistic. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. that's exactly right. I mean, in some instances, you have people that were otherwise, you know, outstanding citizens, no criminal history, it had businesses for years, and then they saw the PPP program as an opportunity to just make a ton of money, and and they took it and they bought luxury cars and luxury homes, and you know, there's all sorts of press releases um, out now of, of those instances, and so those are. Unusual cases. And then you got other people who are, you know, lack of better words, they're, they're prior criminals. So they got prior criminal history. And, and this was just a better or easier way to commit fraud and, and to get money. So the who are the uh, agencies involved? So the uh, Secret Service is involved in this as well? Yeah. So there's, you know, there have been a number of, I think, what are referred to as MOUs or memos of understanding so that agencies can work together to, to try to recover funds or try to prosecute these cases and share information a little bit more freely. 
the SBA themselves has their own <clears throat> OIG or Office of Inspector General, but they're they're a small they're they're a smaller unit, and they don't really have the bandwidth to handle what I'm sure will be tens of thousands of, of cases of fraud across the country. So you've seen them work with IRS, Secret Service, FBI, a- any sort of agencies trying to, you know, throw their arms around this and recover funds and prosecute those that, that got involved with it. Yeah. And, and what, what I've seen in in a few cases now is that um, you'll have um, a client that's that's being investigated or he's being charged with say bank fraud or money fraud unrelated to PPP or any of this stuff. Well, now this is another box that they're going to check off and they're going to look at because it, it, I don't want to say invariably or statistically they're going to, it's going to be it's going to be another crime, but the agents are looking at it. So it's another thing that they look at to see whether the person that they've investigated for, you know, maybe a a wire fraud or an embezzlement from a corporation also committed some type of loan fraud, PPP fraud. You know, banks are required under the Bank Secrecy Act to to monitor account activity. And so, you know, banks themselves have reporting requirements if they see something suspicious to report it to law enforcement. I'm sure that's going on. I'm confident, positive that's going on as well. You know, if there's a sort of been a dormant corporation that has done nothing for five years and all of a sudden got $3 million of PPP funds, you know, the banks are going to flag that information as well. You had mentioned something when we talked before about the Secret Service um, <clears throat> serving seizure warrants. Yeah, and that was anecdotal um, during the um, well during the election. Uh, you know, as you know, Secret Service has a dual function. Uh, protection is their primary, but they also do financial investigations. And because of the number of, you know, I guess, the number of people that are they have to protect under the Trump administration and the other former administrations, plus it's an election year, um, they were running pretty thin uh, as far as being able to investigate these crimes. Um, and so I had a conversation with one of the agents and he was telling me that every every time he's back, he was back in Orlando, he was seizing money and then he's going back off to do protection. He was going from bank to bank seizing money because of what David said, is are getting all these leads. The banks are providing them with just, I don't know how many leads. I mean, it wasn't shared, but I, we can, I can just envision that there's got to be, you know, in any given market, there's got to be Hundreds of these things are suspicious, whether they're whether they arrive to the level of criminal prosecution is another issue. But there's certainly a lot of suspicious activity involving this loan program. Yeah, a recent a recent case that I, I mentioned to you earlier, you're both aware of. See, it seems like it would have been a red flag. I don't mean to be flip. You know, I've never investigated anything other than my daughters sneaking out of the house. But um, that oh, counts. Beauty, some, that <laughs> You know something? They're devious, and I ended up having to work with the local police. It's <laughs> like, what are they up to? Oh, what has she done this time? The um, oh, she's gonna hear this. No, she won't. Uh, the so this, one of the most recent ones was a, a beauty supply company claiming to employ farmers. <laughs> Is that, would that be a red flag? Do you think? Not in Florida, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that sound uh, means it's time for a break. And this is it. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is sponsored in part by FastCase Legal Research. For over 20 years, FastCase has been providing industry-leading tools to solo lawyers, law firms, and bar associations across the country. I should have taken a breath there. With the trusted goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. It's really a goal in which they are entrusted 
to make legal research easier and more intuitive. I like that. Aside from delivering a vast database of cases, statutes, regulations, court rules, and more, FastCase is integrated with powerful digital applications like Docket Alarm. I actually like Docket Alarm quite a bit. I don't know why I said actually, as if I'd be reading this. You know, I didn't believe in it. Docket Alarm. Docket Alarm is awesome. And that helps uh, bring your legal research to the next level. I do encourage you to try Docket Alarm. In fact, you can. For more information on what FastCase solutions or which FastCase solutions are right for you, visit FastCase.com or send a message to sales at FastCase.com. So, Dan, can you take us back to uh, Florida with the beauty supply company and uh, and their farmers? I just looked at the press release this morning. It's out of the Southern District of Florida. They just they just made up employees. I mean, dozens of employees for both the LLCs, I guess, and and bought luxury cars and did all the things that you're not supposed to do with this money. <laughs> so when we talked before, uh, uh, Dave, I think you you outlined there were three three types of cases. Sort of what you you're gonna see and and are seeing already is you know there, there's there's individuals or or individual entities that have applied for PPP funds, and there will be some sort of false claim on the application. Um, That triggers a number of criminal statutes that we won't necessarily bore you with, but there's lots of different types of tools and resources that the government can prosecute you for, for making false applications to the government and then obtaining funds. Then, you know, what I would expect you would see is that there were entities and companies formed just for the purpose of helping companies get PPP loans. And I'm sure that there will be some of those entities that were sort of, you know, committing fraudulent activity as well, because they were, I guess, paid probably by the number of loans they were able to get through. And that's how the government funded, you know, not just banks, but actual, you know, third parties that would make the application on your behalf to get the loan funded. Because again, the PPP money is technically a loan. It is a forgivable loan by the government that you can apply for the forgiveness if you meet the criteria and use the money appropriately. <clears throat> so then, you know, that'll come back to the false application part where there's the false application and then there's going to be some sort of cover up for the false numbers and false use of those funds. And then the last thing that, you know, I, I think I, I know that I'm involved with with Dan some too is there's a whistleblower programs designed for people that know of fraud and can blow the whistle on that fraud when the government is is being taken for money that it shouldn't be. And there's whistleblower programs with the IRS and the SBA SBA that can take place for those individuals to come forward. And whatever is recovered, the whistleblower actually gets a a portion of the recovery if the government's able to seize funds and and sort of try to make the government whole. So that's where you're going to see cases sort of you know, targeting and where they're going to be originating for for individuals that might be listening that, you know, they say, hey, you know, I know this barbershop up the street, they got $6 million in PPP funds, and they have two employees, you know, we were all talking about it, and and they can call a whistleblower like Dan or I, and uh, whistleblower lawyer, and, and, you know, there's, there's rules and procedures that we can go in filing a False Claims Act lawsuit under seal or, or otherwise to try to help the government recover those funds. Yeah, and, and there's an important point I want to make, <laughs> which uh, came to light recently, and again, I won't get into case specifics, but uh, DOJ has been pretty, uh, uh, I don't know, pretty vigilant, Department of Justice, uh, pretty public about um, 
having people give them a call. They've got a DOJ COVID-19 hotline, which is wonderful. And it's, it's, a, it's a mechanism to fight crime. But what happens is if you call that hotline, you don't necessarily qualify as a whistleblower. Uh, as David and I know, a whistleblower has to go through a different process. Mm-hmm. You can get attorneys such as myself, David and I both are ex-federal prosecutors and we've done, done these cases. Once you do that, then of course you notify law enforcement immediately, but you've got a placeholder so that there is an opportunity for you to um, receive a, a, an award at the end of the at the end of the case. You're, you're you, you've got that. Whereas if you just call the hotline, you just call the hotline. Um, so I just want to point that out. It's, that that's come to light um, within the last month with the situation. And the other thing is that the types of cases are are the ones we spoke about, but then there's another variety where you have people that are otherwise innocent people. A lot of times, I don't want to say demographically, a lot of times they're younger people and they might get an email, they might get a phone call, um, or they might get a referral from a friend of a friend that says, hey, there's this PPP money out there. All we need to do is, uh, you know, we can apply for it on your behalf. Um, I know this person that's a broker, they take a, you know, they take 25%, it's all legal. Just provide, you know, me with your, your social security number, date of birth, address, blah, blah, blah. And so that can go a lot of different ways. They can actually apply for the loan on your behalf and import all sorts of fraudulent information about a company that you don't own, employees that you don't employ, and a business that you never had. And maybe within a couple of weeks, you get the money in your bank account, less than 25%, or and or they can take your identity and steal your identity. <laughs> so then, mm-hmm. great, you've got the money, but you are now the victim of identity theft, which will probably won't reveal itself for, you know, six months, a year, two years down the road. So there is an applicant, I mean, there, you know, that applies for the PPP. And there may be employees of that company that are legitimately getting let's say a portion of the funds right let's say that, that you have an employee that makes fifty thousand dollars a year at a company but un- unknowingly that company applied and put down that person makes a hundred thousand dollars a year and so there could be a diversion of that difference in the ppp allotment to the owner of the company without the employee actually knowing about it so again that could be somebody unknowingly going along with with a company that's receiving PPP funds, but they could find out about it or they could do something else and notify law enforcement or, or whistleblower lawyer to try to do something about it. Yeah. And that happens. They go and they'll talk to the employee and, and you know, there's a disconnect. Well, the employee says, what are you talking about? I only got $50,000 last year. I didn't get a hundred, you know, and they're, they're interviewed by Secret Service or FBI or SBA. Uh, so those cases are pretty simple to make. The other thing you have too is uh, there's, these cases are subject to phishing. So let's say you do legitimately apply for an SBA, and now <laughs> you get these uh, you get these emails back from people that are that are that are not legitimate, that are you know touting themselves as brokers and telling you they can get a better deal, and you know you tap on the wrong link. Of course, again, they're in your computer, ransomware. I mean, there's all sorts of bad things that happen when 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 you do that. So, well, if they send you an email and they say it's legal, they can't lie, right? <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the uh, the remedies then. So these are criminal cases. What they they can be either. Um, for example, under the False Claims Act, you know, a whistleblower can bring a civil action technically in place of the government that the government can then intervene with. But then, you know, even though it's it's sort of a quasi criminal proceeding because if there is a crime that's identified, the government still has the right. To pursue some sort of you know prosecution in addition to a civil remedy, you know that they don't necessarily fit into one or the other. They can sort of be a blend of, of both. I guess people can end up in prison. 
for this stuff. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, you start to see people going to prison for it, you know, especially because, you know, Dan and I are criminal defense attorneys by trade, but also former prosecutors. And, you know, a lot of these individuals are not going to be looked upon kindly by judges who uh, understood what the purpose of this, you know, sort of mm -hmm. loan was to, to help the economy grow. And yeah. And just to answer your question, Tom, I mean, there's all sorts of frauds that are involved. It's mail fraud, wire fraud, you possibly have money laundering, depending on how they, what they do with the assets, with the proceeds of the, of the fraud. Uh, you see that when they spend the money on, you know, toys, exotic cars and boats and things like that. So those are all just the bread and butter of a federal prosecutor. Those are easy cases to make. I mean, it's not like it's some, you know, strange ma magical formula that they have to put together. They just go to one of the other cases that they've done over the years and just basically, you know, cut and paste and put the, put the indictment together. When I spoke to you guys before, you pointed out, of course, some of this, uh, some of these are called loans, but there is a, a forgiveness aspect to it. So that's, that's down the road. So what, what might, you know, there's a gush of cases right now, but might that deal more? I think what you're going to see is, the original application was just going to be for the for the people that improperly or, or illegally obtained these loans, the start of the fraud. Then what you're going to see with loans over $150,000, there's now the government's going to ask for all that paperwork and all the proof that it went to exactly how it was supposed to go. And that's where you're going to see sort of that whole second wave of people that are either really bad at covering up for their, you know, sort of crime already, or um, sort of a new sifting process of, okay, we've identified X number more. I mean, like I said, you're going to get to over, you know, thousands and thousands of these fraudulent loans at, at various sort of price points of, of amounts that they got. Um, you know, the, the government's not necessarily equipped to prosecute everything, but they are going to go after sort of the easiest, most readily provable ones for sure. Right. And, and we're not privy, Tom, um, anymore since we left the U.S. Attorney's Office to what, you know, those guidelines are. But, but they're probably, you know, they're going to do it. They'll scale it. I mean, they're going to look at certain certain losses amount uh, as, you know, their, their targets. And then it they'll also factor in just the nature of the fraud. I mean, there's one that I just saw that was in I think it was in Houston just within the last couple of days that involved a charitable organization. Those cases, regardless if it's, if it's PPP fraud or if it's any type of fraud, anytime there's a charity that's involved in fraud and they can prove it, I mean, that's going to go to the top of the woodpile, so to speak. Is there a uh, an average statute limitations on some of these things like wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering? or? Yeah, I mean, usually the statute of limitations is about five years, but for bank fraud and wire fraud, it, there's ways that the government can make that 10 years. Yeah, and, and there's... Along the same lines with Dave, I guess the earlier question is that, you know, all criminal or, or administrative or if it's civil, it depends on how culpable the person is. So in a situation where they were, I guess, targeted uh, for these loans and somebody fed them this this lie and told them that they could apply for it. And I mean, should they have known better? Yes. But I am aware of instances where that's happened and they've been cooperative and, and turned the money back in and said, listen, this, here's the money. It's in my account. You know, come take it. Or the bank has been proactive in taking it, and then they've cooperated. They haven't they haven't faced criminal charges. Um, so there's different again. There's different levels of culpability. Now the people that are the brokers that are orchestrating this this whole scheme, wherever they are, they could be in any any place. It could be you know out, we're in Florida. They could be anywhere in the United States doing this. Those are the ones they really really want to uh, to prosecute. 
So it's a it's a public service announcement. So what would you tell you know people who get solicited for taking out loans? You know, I'm in a community where a few elderly people they're often victims of these kinds of things. What would you tell people? Well, th- there's a legal way to do it. I was looking at I think it was one of the press releases from the SBA. I mean, they you, the brokers can take a certain percentage. It's a pretty low percentage. It's up to three percent for fifty thousand, and one percent up to a million. And there's another there's another um, add add on after that. But the the I guess the red flag would be if somebody says, "Hey, you know, it's twenty five percent," you know, or if they say, I'm, "You know, you need to pay me in advance. Um, pay me, you know, let me get into your bank account and, and take out some money in advance so that I can do this." That that's a fraud. And again, the elderly population is something that vulnerable, not because it's just because of, you know, the technology, unfamiliar with the technology and how things work. And a lot of times it's generational. They want to believe, you know, they have good hearts. And so they believe mm-hmm. in people. That's, that's how they become victims. So I'm, I'm assuming all these email alerts are potential clients who are. Uh... <laughs> well, if this was live, I, it would be much more exciting for us because people would be contacting us this quickly. But no, I, that's uh... <laughs> Sometimes when we go to court and and there's a you know you get about eight emails right after any hearing that mm. tells you what happened at the hearing, schedules the next hearing, and everything else. So sometimes they come in in a flurry. So, so back to these people who come to uh, businesses and say you know they'll do things for twenty five percent of the loan. Um, how can that come back to the uh, to the to the uh, borrower? If you're siphoning off twenty five percent to whoever asks you or tells you they can help you get it. <laughs> Not only you're going to get fraud, you know, defrauded out of 25, percent but then you're going to have to pay the whole loan back. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the, and the other one last thing, it's just it's something that David and I live with, have lived with, you know, for years doing these cases as both prosecutors and defense attorneys. It's not a fair system when this thing all gets exposed because the reality is they can go to the broker who's the really the most culpable guy, and he can say, you know what, I've got my list of 30 people here that I've gotten these loans for. And I will help you with those people. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will cooperate against every single one of them. And I've got texts and phone calls and everything else. And that's the beauty, I guess, of the federal prosecution system. They can get less time potentially than the person that took the, the smaller loan. So that's how they do drug cases. That's how they do fraud cases. Beauty that's in the eye of the beholder, Dan. That may not be beauty to, to others. Uh, I said that facetiously. I'm a criminal defense attorney now. I'm just saying that's how the system works. It's 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 built in, and it and it actually is very effective. So, is there anything else you wanted to cover? Because I, I I went through my list. It's uh it's an unfortunate situation, but I mean now we've got you know we've got this, and it's going to be around for a long time. Are you amending your PPP application, Tom? That's really what I want to know. <laughs> but it was completely honest. Okay, well, I'm never going to get that loan. Once again, you've been listening to David Haas and Dan Eckert, two former federal prosecutors, now defense attorneys in Florida. Uh, I really want to thank them for taking the time to do this. Uh, they, they did put a lot of time into it. In fact, we did it twice. Let's just say somebody forgot to hit record. Once again, this is Tom Hagee, and this is the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, and Fast Case, and Law Street Media, and let's throw in Docket Alarm, because I like Docket Alarm. Well, I hope you enjoyed this, and if you have any questions or comments, uh, you can, of course, listen to this on any platform that provides podcasts. We encourage you to rate it and comment, but only say nice things. If you have any questions or want to participate, 
In this or in the companion product, which is the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, write to me. Editor at... (laughs) That's wrong. Editor at litigationconferences.com. Thanks for listening today.